Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. So I'm really excited about this. Scott Melker is somebody I follow a lot. And I like to speak to all different people in the space, whether they're hedge fund managers in the space, people who, who've built the protocol, business founders, cultural people. And Scott's really at the epicenter of all of this because he, like me, gets to talk to some of the most amazing people in the world. And he's got a great story too. And I think it's really important that we understand the whole space. So I can't wait to speak to Scott. He's a super lovely guy. I've never had him on this side of the camera. He's interviewed me several times, so I can't wait. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Ral Powell, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Scott Melker, finally, I get to turn the tables on you. It can't possibly go as well. Uh, this direction. I'm sorry. Well, you're a better interviewer than I am. That's why. <laughs> you're a better interviewer than me, so we can uh, disappoint everyone. It's perfect. So, listen, I want to start at the beginning because you've got a fantastic story, and I just love how people get into this crazy world in the first place. And you came through a very bizarre route. So let's start at the beginning. I want to hear the Scott story. Sure. Yeah, definitely bizarre. But I think that, uh, as you said, there's a lot of circuitous ways to get here, but we all seem to arrive in the same place one way or another. I, I really started getting interested in markets when I was uh, 12, 13 years old. I, I bought Disney stock and Caterpillar stock because I thought tractors and Mickey Mouse were cool. And I had parents who, you know, obviously valued a financial education and sort of uh, pushed saving and those things on me. We're talking about 1988, 1989, when you had to call somebody and you know, stock certificates, the good old days. Um, and so I think I just had sort of a interest in markets the whole time. I went to the University of Pennsylvania in the late 90s, and that was really during the Wall Street boom. Everybody I went to school with, even if they were like an anthropology or an English or an art history major, went to Wall Street, right? Literally everyone. So I actually turned down a job, Solomon Smith Barney, uh, to become a DJ. You know, and, and there, was a, there was a lot more to it. I you should have done other... it the other way around, like David I, I, Solomon. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. See, he's going to always be a lot richer than me because he had a smart career path. Uh, but I had a lot of people who worked for him uh, that I went to school with. But so, you know, there was a lot of other things I tried. I was sort of a scattered entrepreneur, but at the core of it was really my music. But the one thing you have a lot of when you DJ late at night is time during the day, right? So I always was a trader, often badly. Uh, you know, I blew up at least three times that I like to recount, but probably not worth going into that now. The last of the last major blow up was around 2012 when I bought a stock and literally went to zero and wrote it all the way. And that, you know, got a little traumatic. Um, but as I was sort of winding down the music career. No, 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 uh, no. We're not going to go skip over the music career. I want to hear the music career because I love music. You know, I grew up in dance music. I lived in Spain. I was staring at Ibiza all day. You know, that well, was I'm my jealous because that's the one place I never made it to with all the invitations. 
You know, Ibiza was one of those things where I wanted to go in the 90s and it didn't happen. Then it was the early 2000s and it didn't happen. And by the time I was going to go, everybody told me it was already spoiled and I was too late, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of like crypto, actually, uh, when I got in 2016, 17. So I just never made it. But yeah, you know, I started as a literally a DJ at my college parties in dingy houses in, in West Philadelphia at Penn and evolved into playing stuff in, in Philadelphia and then, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Washington. And then and this, what, it, what kind of music were you playing when you started? Uh, that, that really depended on the phase. At the beginning, I was a hip hop DJ, just outright. And these were the vinyl days, you have to remember. So you really had to choose. It was like every song you wanted to play at a gig cost you 10 bucks, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like now. You had to carry it and you had to be really selective. So you couldn't just, not like the computer days, where you could have every song in the world uh, accessible to you at all times. So, but then I got really, really into electronic music, particularly trance, progressive house. Uh, and then sort of evolved towards Deep House. So in those early days, I was kind of all over the place, but the biggest gigs I did uh, were in that vein. Actually, it's, I went to Twilo in New York City and I saw Paul Van Dyke and it blew my mind. It was like this religious experience. And I walked into the DJ booth. I was just like a senior in college. Somehow I wasn't a girl or anything and he they allowed me in. I don't know why. And I convinced him that I was going to book him to come to Philadelphia. I don't know what I was on. And we started this party in Philly called Air Trance at a club called Shampoo. And we got him. And then we booked like all this world-class talent. They came and played with us terrible trance DJs. And we basically found a way to open for and play these huge parties. And so that was kind of the beginning of it all. And I, I went through these major waves of music, but eventually found a way, you know, I booked a tour in 2006 in Japan with the Michael Jackson of D Japan. His name was Toshi Kubota. So I did a 30 city tour in Japan of stadiums. Oh, like I've been to more oh. cities probably in Japan now than I've been in the United States. And that led to really getting a lot of things where I was playing, you know, opening acts for Enrique Iglesias. And I mean, pretty crazy, crazy situations. And those were where... the days you could actually make money DJing as well. It got, it got much harder. I, I think I, I was right before the real glory days and then it got a lot harder. You know, back then I remember DJ Am booked this million dollar year residency in Vegas and it was mind blowing to everybody that you could show up once a week and get a million bucks, which is 20 ish grand a night, right? Well, now I think the chain smokers get like 1.2 million a day in Vegas every time they show up, right? So I think it, that, that money did evolve to some degree, but yeah, it was, you, you could make a living. Uh, but I kept uh, dumping all of my profits into the market and losing it. So it was kind of irrelevant. <laughs> I couldn't, whatever job I was doing, it didn't really matter. But then but I had kids, you know, and, and really I like to joke sort of, if you ever seen the movie Dazed and Confused, you know, Matthew McConaughey's, McConaughey's character, he says, you know, the best part about high school girls is I get older, they stay the same age. Well, that's how I felt about DJing. I just kept getting older, but the crowd was still perpetually 21. And at a point you're like, I'm 34, 35. These kids are trying to like buy me drinks, you know, Jägermeister shots or something. I don't know. And it's just <laughs> embarrassing, you know? And so like, I, I just kind of transitioned out, but that was the perfect timing for me. I said I was going to trade more. That's how I was going to make a living because I uh, hate fun and want to torture myself. Uh, but I found crypto, you know, and it was late 2016 going into 2017 where you could throw darts and make money. And frankly, I just got very lucky with my timing. But I came in as a trader. I just wanted to make money. And then so I before, got orange filled. <laughs> before we go to crypto, my, 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 my favorite moment of the dance music thing is a friend of mine uh, was, a, was a house DJ called ATFC and, uh, and producer. And I ended up in the DJ booth at Pasha for Bob Sinclair 
headlining patter on a Friday night. And that was an extraordinary moment in time. There was a lot of energy around that scene then. I feel like Bob Sinclair, like, quietly was the one who transitioned EDM or whatever, all the genres of EDM from being sort of underground still to being just wildly mainstream. Yeah, exactly. And then David Gasser and everybody else kind of came yeah. after that. But I feel like he doesn't get the credit now that you mention it for having done that because World Hold On, those two songs, I mean, were just massive anthems. And even in New York City, you know, that was when I remember it, the clubs transitioning to really playing house music and club music from being all basically hip hop clubs in New York City besides the underground spots. So that must have been a just mind-blowing experience. It, it was, it was. Anyway, that's enough indulgence over music because I <laughs> love it. So why the hell crypto? So you've been trading, trading poorly, but you seem to be addicted to it. Mm -hmm. Why were you addicted to trading or addicted being a wrong word? But why, why was it interesting to you? And then might how be the right word. <laughs> and and how crypto in that journey? Well, I, you know, I, I always, like I said, found markets generally fascinating, uh, the sort of human psychology. The problem is that, that I understood it, but was a victim of it. And it, it took quite a long time to step out of the matrix, so to speak, and be able to see it for what it was without participating, I think. And that's why all of my errors in the past were always the classics that you teach anyone about, you know, FOMOing in, buying the top, selling the bottom, panicking, just uh, being a human, basically. Um, but I always really was just interested in the the framework of it, you know, like why markets move the way they did, what gave companies value, what gave assets value, how this sort of shared human belief in things contributing to making them real and valuable. When I found crypto by complete luck, DJs were super into crypto and people don't realize that. 2015, 16, 17, somebody offered to pay me Bitcoin for $500 in Bitcoin for a DJ gig in 2011. And I said no, because I wanted money. The um, Winkle Bosses so, got into, they first heard about Bitcoin at a club in Ibiza. See, see, it's a, it's, it really is. But so uh, all these DJs were kind of speculating gamblers. And I had a friend and he said, you got to buy this thing, Bitcoin. I was like, I've heard of that one. You know, and then you send it to Bittrex because remember back then there was only Bitcoin trading pairs. You couldn't trade against, there was no stable coins and there was no access to USD. And literally everything I remember, everything had uh, S at the end. It was all pluralized. You had to buy Ripples and Ethereums and Litecoins, right? Because nobody even knew how to pronounce any of it. It was just ridiculous. But I was buying, you know, Ripple at a penny, two cents, something like that. I remember buying TRX at 20 sats when Binance became a thing. Like I said, it was just lucky timing. So I think I got very hooked. And to be, if we're being really honest about it, I think I backed into the importance of the asset class and really started digging when everything went down, right? Because then I had to Don't convince that myself that I was here Don't for a reason. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Yeah, talk me through that first cycle because, you know, everybody's got to go through the hero to zero moment. You've gone through it a few times, but the crypto one is quite astounding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I view a uh, portfolio and maybe life as a kind of like I view a chart. You know, I, I, I love the visualization of charts. I love technical analysis since I was first introduced to it. My grandfather was a stockbroker, actually used to drop charts on the uh, on the kitchen table uh, every morning. It's It's crazy. But I, you know, I view both my, my life and my portfolio as a series of higher highs and higher lows. So I was, you know, as long as I'm making a higher low in the next cycle, I've been somewhat successful with no uh, expectation that I'm going to always be at that all-time high. 
And so having sort of been through the cycles, been through, you know, the early 2000 cycle, certainly the Great Recession, I knew what it was like to try to at least secure profits, but certainly what it was like to be, uh, you know, exuberant and then lose everything. Uh, so I did manage at the end of 2017, early 2018 to lock in meaningful profits enough that I didn't have horrible regret, uh, enough that uh, I saw the family, um, you know, enough that uh, I was able to stick around, you know. And so I think that the key to being passionate about crypto is surviving long enough to actually realize why it matters, you know, and, and I think I, I managed that. But I had no intention of being an influencer, or whatever they call us, or having a large Twitter account or a newsletter or podcast. I literally was on Twitter as a musician. I alienated everybody that followed me. I cut my following in half from 40,000 to 20,000. And I just started sharing these charts. And for whatever reason, it resonated. But my initial sort of Twitter popularity in those markets was my trades. It was me posting charts. It was not really talking about Bitcoin. I had no podcast. I had none of that. Um, and so I just became extremely passionate about it. And through that crash and then sort of becoming more cognizant of monetary policy and really going down the rabbit hole of, of the Fed and, and central banks, you start to realize that how important the asset class is. And that's when I really became obsessed and just started talking about it all the time. Right. I had a Twitter account and I said, it's not enough. I need to write a newsletter. This, you know, 180 characters or whatever it is, isn't enough for me. It's all free. You know, and then uh, the guys at Blockworks, you probably know them. Jason Yanowitz calls me, like a uh, cold calls me one day and says, hey, man, you got a pretty good presence. You should start a podcast. I said, what the hell is podcast? Uh, but I'll do that, you know, and I started uh, horribly uh, these planned interviews. And so that's when I really, the journey for me is like a slow tumble down the rabbit hole, I think. And I think it's that way. Some people are galaxy brain and just get it from the very beginning. You know, they see Bitcoin, they say, Maybe they were a gold bug before and they really understand it. I was not like that at all. I, I was one of those who needed it sort of hammered home repeatedly. And I really did take sort of the traditional, you know, I, I feel like I came in through the back door because of trading. Like my first love in crypto was not Bitcoin, it was Doge, right? Because you may remember <laughs> those massive Doge cycles where it was just like free money. You know, you buy between 20 and 30 sats and it goes up to 180 and you sell and you wait two months and you do the whole thing again. And it was a lovable meme. And so, you know, I, I have sort of, even though I don't want people to trade these things and lose their money, I do have a sort of like affection for NFTs or, or you're a DJ now, artist. Yeah. You're and, but I DJ. do think that, you know, I think you can make the argument that there's been more people introduced to Bitcoin through the back door, through all of these assets than those who just got it right away and believed that they were, you know, uh, buying a store of value or, or digital gold. So I think it really took me a long time, to be quite honest. But once you get it, man, there's no turning back. Have you ever met anyone who was like, I was wrong about that Bitcoin thing, I'm giving up? Unless they just lost their money, right? But I yeah, think there's a bunch who... of people who give up. No, they, there's a lot of people who give up, but they generally all come back. Yeah. Because they don't understand the cycles and how difficult it is to deal with a cycle. So they're like, no, no, I think I made a mistake. And then they all come back. I've seen that. Yeah, they'll be back when Bitcoin's seventy-five thousand dollars. That's when they'll buy. Right before we go to forty-five on the way to a hundred, right? And, and that's the part of it that I kind of was so obsessed with. I think from the beginning, and what made trading so interesting is exactly what you described. I don't think they necessarily either. They didn't really have the conviction in the first place, which I think is probably the case. But I mean, you can look at twenty twenty-two. I think there's a lot of people who just got washed out by all these bankruptcies and failures that they just can't stomach having conviction when they don't have skin in the gate 
But how is it for you, the 2020-21 cycle, where suddenly you start accumulating a big presence online, a lot of people listening to you, and then afterwards the world blows up and everyone's like, Scott, you're a wanker, Rel, you're a wanker. You know, we've seen that whole cycle. So talk me through that, the kind of up and down of that, because I think it's it's just interesting for people to understand what it's like psychologically. Miserable. It, it is. And I'm not going to pretend that it never affected me and that it didn't matter because I think people love you till, you know, they only love you as much as the last trade that you posted online or the last idea that you shared or the last thread that you wrote. And two years of positive history can be erased by one market crash. I mean, there was times where I, I literally feel like crypto Twitter thought that it was my fault that the bear market came, you know, and I'm sure you felt the same way. Like you get so many attacks, you can't say anything. All of a sudden it's you posted this at the top and this at the top, but they forget what you were doing all the way up, you know? And so I, it was very hard for me. I never, I wouldn't say I wouldn't be dramatic and say I felt like quitting or any of those things, but there were definitely dark periods there where I, I was far less compelled to go online and, and, and share tweets and share ideas. To be honest, you know, you kind of joked earlier, I'm a degen at heart. I am, but it's been years since I've shared any of that publicly on Twitter. I'm not going to share a chart for Pepe, you know, like even if I, I don't, by the way, think it's great, but even if I thought it was like a world changing tech and, and I would just never share it. Right. So it's sort of pigeonholes. I, I sort of joke that Twitter becomes really, really miserable after you get a hundred thousand followers. Like there's just this break where the, even if it's the same percentage of negativity, it just becomes exceptionally loud. You know, you see it in the comments. It's very, you, you can't hide from it anymore. Um, and so you, you sort of see that everybody becomes like a Zen philosopher when they get a hundred thousand, they just start sharing like uh, famous quotes and inspirational ideas uh, about sleep and, uh, you know, drinking enough water because it, be it becomes too difficult to tweet about other things without getting so much pushback. So you end up just being a Bitcoin or an ETH maxi and talking about those things. And so I think that, uh, people forget that you once had 10,000 followers or 5,000 followers or 20,000 followers. And then just one day, all of a sudden you had an impact that you didn't realize you had and you have to change your behavior with time. So I think that, um, it's a blessing. Honestly, I love what I do. I love that. I have an audience. I think it's amazing that people follow me and go along this journey. I just think that my focus became conversations like this rather than posting charts of altcoins, you know, and that's sort of how I became this host that I never intended to doing all these interviews and, and hosting roundtables because it may be controversial content, but you know, I can ask the question, let the other person say the thing and maybe you would have gotten me in trouble uh, otherwise. But really, I think that that's how we, you know, convert more people. But isn't, that, uh, isn't that a shame because you're not giving over your brain power, your, your analytical abilities, right or wrong. You're not sharing it with people anymore. And, you know, everybody suffers from that. And again, because nobody expects everybody to be right, but the collective thought process of, a lot of smart people on Twitter is a, is an astonishing thing when it's happening. It's it's incredible uh, study again in in human psychology. I mean, I do still write a newsletter, and when I see a great idea that I like on a chart, I you know have like seven disclaimers before I share what line I think is cool, uh, and that you know I kind of approach it that way, and I say you know, but it, it really people people's ability to blame strangers for their own bad decisions will never cease to amaze me. You know, and, and the other thing is, is you can be right and they can lose money, 
right? And you're even you're saying this is not financial advice. I didn't even buy this. I'm just analyzing it. And still, you know, they obviously FOMO into something just because they see a cash tag on Twitter. They don't use a stop loss like you would have. They don't know where you're taking profit. You're not reporting to them at home at four o'clock in the morning. And so I think, you know, you just don't, you, you cease to want to feel that responsibility for people's financial decisions, even though you know they're not your fault and you just change your behavior. So I think just for better or for worse, you just have to become sort of a different kind of uh, personality a, as it evolves. I still but, like trading that stuff sometimes, yeah, you know, but quietly you, that, in the background. That's what I was going to ask you is, what do you actually do yourself? I mean, I, interesting, I, I don't trade. I spent my, you know, I was a hedge fund manager. I trade, I don't trade. I really- Not trade much. Very occasionally I'll do something, but generally speaking, I just buy it and hold it. Same. And I'll stuff, I'll stomach the volatility because I'm, kind of used to it now um do you do that i mean i do buy yes. the old nft but i barely ever sell them either how about you i've What's never your... sold an nft in my life right I, I didn't buy that many of them but i've certainly never sold one i'm still holding you know 90 percent of the lower cap things that kind of went to zero that were small bets from the last market because who knows um and because that's the approach that i took with them in the first place right if i if if my approach is 50x or zero and zero comes, well, I should have, you know, I should have been positioned and sized according to, to that, to, to the odds of that happening. Right. So if, if, if they're options, then what's so good about these things, the shrapnel that's left the wrong bets, they're free options because they never expire. That's so right. one day, one day, one of them's going to go and, and, and plenty of them did go right. And I took profit on those in, in the last market. So it's, it's a massive net game, but as to my behavior, First of all, my time is better spent uh, creating content. In my mind, I enjoy it more. Being a trader is very hard. It's not something that I ever intended to do 24-7. You know, it's like uh, you, people are like, I'm going to quit my job to become a trader. And you've now traded your uh, 9 to 5 desk job for a 24-7, 365 desk job uh, with no benefits. Um, and it's just a really hard way to live. And I think you learn that 99% uh, of the time, certainly in this market, sitting on your hands is the best strategy. So there might be some like cycle that comes through that's just really apparent that things are good, right? Bitcoin's gone up 100% sideways and all coins are going left and right. Okay, I'm going to have a little fun for a couple weeks there, you know, and then I'm a trader, but I'm not trading full time. I'm not trying to trade through the chop and volatility to make a paycheck and I and I'm impressed with those who can because there are people who are actually exceptional at that and can look at a five minute chart and figure it out but I'm much more like you and, and to be honest it becomes a element of practice what you preach right I mean if I'm gonna keep telling people dollar cost average this is important zoom out low time preference that should be my approach as well but even when I was honestly at like peak degeneracy I still had at least 50 percent of my portfolio just sitting in Bitcoin and ETH you know, I always believe the bull, and usually for me, it's 70, you know, 70% uh, investment, 15% cash, 15% to a uh, light on fire was always sort of uh, the approach I was taught when I was younger. And I carried that over to crypto. But like I said, if it's full alt season, you know, I'm going to ratchet up, take some of that investment money out and, <laughs> and have a good time. But it's very rare that I buy anything that I'm even thinking about selling in the next six months to year. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. So the other big thing that happened at the tail end of the last 
peak of the cycle was the split of the Bitcoin maxis versus everybody else. How did you deal with that? Because you, like me, were having conversations with everybody. You're inquisitive and curious. And yeah. before you knew it, everybody had split into this weird world. Well, we'll talk about that in a second, but I will tell you that I, what I find most entertaining is now the Bitcoin maxis all hate each other. Because there's different, because there's different various levels of Bitcoin maxi ordinals. I don't have any opinion on ordinals. I just love watching that community cannibalize itself over them. So, um, I, I really do, but, uh, yeah, the, I think it was very hard, but maybe it was always there. I think it just became more of a split maybe because, uh, you know, Ethereum maximalists started to talk about hard money and that was just a little too much stepping on the Bitcoiners toes, but, um, I think uh, largely by that point, I had almost everyone muted or blocked, um, you know, af after going so. through those last cycles. And I, it really is like if a tree falls in the woods, you know, did, did anyone hear it? If you don't read the comments, it never happened, right? And so I really got very good at uh, making Twitter and the community into a one-way street where I just launched. I, I, my joke was that it's I throw a grenade and I walk out of the room, and that's, that's how I view Twitter at this point. And so, you know, I think that I somehow managed to at least maintain enough friends on both sides that it wasn't that bad. And to be honest, I think a lot of them just want to come on the show sometimes. So they tread lightly about calling me names, um, even though that sounds ridiculous. But the, the most toxic Nazis who I've seen say bad things about me on Twitter are certainly knocking on my door when I'm doing a spaces with Michael Saylor saying, can I get on stage? Right. And so... Uh, I think, you know, you get to a big enough platform if you, if you uh, sort of uh, thread that needle, you have a fighting chance. But I was very much on the, I like each side, like you. But my approach was always that they were separate assets and non-competitive, you know, and, and I continue to say that. There's Bitcoin and there's everything else, but that doesn't make everything else bad. There, there's, it's okay to take, you know, a VC approach to investing in speculative technology. I love that. Right. And so that's how I viewed sort of altcoins at the beginning, if it wasn't just outright trading them for, for profit. And so at least I think I always maintained the uh, Bitcoiner mentality and, and kept, you know, on, on the right side of, of history, perhaps there. But to be honest, I don't know, man. It's uh, no matter what you do, you're going to end up on the wrong side of some community. So, I mean, what's the answer? Should I, you know, should we have become Bitcoin maxis and then all the people who love Ethereum would think we deserted them? And if you even mentioned Ethereum, I was just joking about this with uh, David Bailey from the Bitcoin conference, but I, I did a roundtable recently on my YouTube channel and everybody was sort of bullish on Ethereum. They're all Bitcoiners, you know, but they, they like us. And I got a DM from a friend who's a toxic maxi by any definition. And he told me he was disgusted with me because there was no Bitcoin opinion in the conversation. Right. And I, and I said, listen, like next week I'm having a entire Twitter spaces where a bunch of Bitcoiners are going to attack me. Like I'm literally inviting them and I'm going to be the only one who's not a Bitcoiner. So there's not, not going to be anyone representing the other side there. And he said, yes, but any bullish talk of Ethereum is an attack on Bitcoin. Wow. And my, re and my response was, you're really insecure, man. That's literally what I said. I said, listen, Bitcoin doesn't need defending. If it, if it is all the things that we believe it is, if the community is that passionate, then something else being good is not a threat or an attack on your asset. I just don't understand that mentality at all. Maybe it's because I mentally put them into buckets, like I said, but talking about 
Amazon stock is not an attack on gold. Right? <laughs> that's, a, that's really how I view it. I, I don't I know. And the one thing that I've really enjoyed is the rise of the kind of Web3 ethos. It's like, it's very open-minded. It's kind of, we don't really care what chain it's on. There's art, there's music, there's culture. It reminds me, and I've, I've talked a lot about this. I was, I happened to be at the Ledger event in Paris, and I'm sitting there with famous artists, musicians, fashion people, finance people, technologists, all at the same table, united. And I'm like, this stuff rarely happens. It's a, it feels like there is magic here somewhere. Yeah, and they'll tell you that you were sitting at a round table trying to figure out ways to attack Bitcoin, if you ask the uh, toxic magazines, <laughs> right? That you all, you all got together to uh, plot uh, your next next attack. But yeah, I haven't seen anything that's brought these people together. And, and you know, a lot of people say it's a, it's a bubble, it's a speculative bubble, everybody's going to lose their money, but that's fine because those cycles advance the ball, right? The people exactly. who are here earlier are inevitably going to fail, 99% of them, right? And people always, I love when people compare crypto to the late 90s, early 2000s tech and internet bubble, as if that's a bad thing. Yes, there were pets.com and NetTaxi or whatever, all these companies that went to zero, but there was also Google and Amazon and the biggest companies in the world. And so I view these cycles that we see in crypto, certainly this bear market, as washing out all of the failures. Listen, there were plenty of outright scams, horrible ideas, I'm sure. But most of them are just honest people who tried something. Maybe they were a brilliant technologist, but horrible at managing treasury. I think that's what we saw a lot of times. They thought that they had unlimited money and that everything was cut down 90% and they failed. For whatever various reasons they failed, but they might have come up with the idea that the next entrepreneur grabs and runs with, and that becomes the next Amazon, Google, et cetera. And so, I, you know, I view sort of these cycles and these washouts as a, just a natural cleansing. And I really do think that each market for that higher low idea, the things are being built that are going to be the next huge ideas in the future. But you talked about that. When else could you sit at a table with a famous artist, a big DJ, a musician, and everybody's excited because it's theoretical for a lot of us. I was in the music industry. It's a heaping dumpster fire. You get screwed left and right. It's worse than crypto. People don't realize, but art, you know, it's very predatory. I think if, if you're a creative and you don't have business sense or trusted people around you or good contracts or good lawyers, when you get to a certain point and the reason all those people here, many will say they're just speculating and trying to make money. But the reason they're all here is a shared belief that there's a better system than the incumbent systems that they've come from where they've all suffered or been abused or been the one who made the hit song but only got paid 1% of the revenue, if even that. And yeah, you can put that in an NFT and go sell it and capture all the value yourself. So whether that works yet or whether they actually made money, everybody is sick of these old systems. And I think that's the shared, and that's something that Bitcoiners, Ethereum, Web3, everybody should share. And, and we're united by the even bigger meta-narrative of the financial systems broken. The central banks are debasing the value of our savings and earnings. So we've got a societal level problem. And then we've got our business problems, which is like value is being extracted from me and I don't get to capture it. And I'm feeling exploited and that's happening almost across all industries, particularly particularly the cultural industries. Culture's being extracted a lot and monetized by others 
and not the people driving the culture. Oh, sure, there's a few who can make a lot of money, but it feels that that becomes very powerful. That's why an artist sits next to a technologist, sits next to a fashion person, because they're all like, we get the big problem, but we can solve all of our problems too. And they will all be here in the next cycle. I don't think that those people got washed out in the same way that we talk about retail that may have suffered in these other things. I, I talk to these people all the time and they don't care that their NFTs went down in value, right? They, they still actually believe that there will be a use case to, you know, better collect royalties from their copyrights and, and all these things that are being built. And so I think that uh, the next cycle in Web3 is going to be absolutely massive, whether the, those Bitcoiners love it or not. It's inevitable, you know, it, it really is because this is a movement that's going to improve the lives of people. And I love what you said, because these sort of insular cultural problems are a microcosm of that much greater problem that you touched on. And I'm, I'm 46 years old, even going through the past few, few cycles in markets, not crypto specifically, I don't remember there being a time when people were so cognizant or curious about inflation and central bank policy and monetary policy. You never saw a new generation of gold bugs, even through all of that, at least in my opinion, right? It re remained the boomers, my generation, even though we got beaten down by markets repeatedly, we never were passionate about buying gold uh, because I don't think we understood. It took until I was in my forties to really have that aha moment about what central banks were pulling off and truly understand monetary policy. And let's be honest, I think we all fell way further and faster down the rabbit hole when COVID hit. Not because of the virus itself, because of the monetary policy reaction to that, right? When you see, well, now yeah, we love to throw these sticks around, 40, 50% of the entire monetary supply in history up here in 18 months, that's gonna even get your average person on the street scratching their head. Where is all this stimulus coming from? Where, how do they just airdrop us money? You know, how, how do, where does that come from? You know, why are goods now twice as expensive after they airdropped us a whole bunch of money? Well, that seems connected. And so I think very sort of obscure, it's happening to them in other countries. You know, your American would have said, well, maybe Venezuela or Argentina, Lebanon, maybe if they're really informed start to become really issues that head home when you're having trouble paying your rent or gas is too expensive. And so I think we've had a grand awakening, still a small percentage of the, pol of the population, but now you hear it from everyday people who understand these problems. And for the first time, whether it ends up being the answer or not, there is a potential answer, and that is obviously the crypto, crypto space. And so I think that's why it sort of makes winning inevitable and more people pouring in. Also, Web2 is just done. It's just over. Like there, there has to be a next, you and I talked about on Spaces very recently, but seeing what's happening in AI, I mean, and, I'm, and I know that a lot of that will be tied to crypto down the road, but all of the sort of theoretical ideas that you share often and, and others do about people not being able to understand exponential adoption and really how fast crypto has been adopted, you can't look at ChatGPT and not understand that immediately. It's mind-blowing. I use it every day and, and every day there's something new to do that I read about. I'm somewhat obsessed with it. Uh, I drive my wife nuts. But I tried to remind her that the last time I drove you nuts was uh, when I found crypto and that worked out fine. So. <laughs> so, listen, you're still in LA, right? You're I'm in Florida. Oh, in Florida. I, you I, I, I was born in LA, but I, I live in Florida. Yeah. 
And when you are talking to people who aren't from the industry, so the broader businesses, are you picking up that, you know, because you've been around the cultural industries for a long time, are you picking up people that are now taking more attention to this and realizing that there is a bigger, broader thing here at play? I think they absolutely are. If we're talking about crypto specifically, I think the majority of the population has heard of Bitcoin now, right? And I think you see it on CNBC, the Fox News ticker. It's a part of the everyday dialogue. It's in the mainstream news. I, I did not think that would have happened by this point because maybe I am not able to think as exponentially as others. But, you know, if in 2018 or 19, you told me that we'd be a ticker on CNBC, I probably would have thought you were nuts. And that's been the case now for for a couple of years. So I think your average person at least has heard of Bitcoin and can say, oh, that's that funny internet money or it's digital money or has a very basic understanding. And so I don't, I think that's the zero to one moment. You know, we talk about the exponential growth and adoption. If people have heard of it and the world is now presenting problems that will drive them potentially in that direction, I think it's just a matter of time. There's plenty of people who push back immediately when I talk about it. That's a scam, joke, it's a bubble, it's not real, no intrinsic value, not backed by anything. But those narratives are becoming quieter and the big ones I think that we've shared over the years that have been problematic are slowly melting into the background. I mean, every single time you go through any even mini cycle or bear cycle in crypto, it's Chinese ban, India ban, only for criminals, ESG, <laughs> regulation. Boiling, boiling the ocean, regulation. And, you know, with time, I think those things all sort themselves out. Listen, I am horrified by what we're seeing in the United States, uh, the approach to the industry, but uh, my uh, optimistic, you know, jet general positive is that we'll figure it out. And if this, these guys don't figure it out, if we've seen anything in United States politics is that, uh, They'll just eventually get replaced and those guys will figure it out. So it's just a matter of time, right? Uh, we see regime change now just utterly change. You see everything repealed, you know, and rewritten. Re re I think we get it right. I just don't think we get it right under Gary Gensler for the moment. But um, I think it's a matter of time. But you talk about the average person on the street, they're at least aware of us. Whether they have a positive or negative view, they know. And so that's what brings me on to my next point is, we now assume, let's say, everybody in the United States, so let's call it the Western world, has heard of this. So the next time around the market's rallying and making new highs, you're going to suck in an extraordinary amount of people. This is why I don't think people yet understand. Um, I've even been thinking through the issue actually with ETH, not because I'm an ETH maxio and plenty of other stuff, but ETH has a diminishing supply with more activity and more and more people stake it so it's not available in the market. And we're probably going to have a big whoosh <laughs> as you bring in all of these people who've heard about it. I'm like, this sounds like we could have a very different cycle this time around. I don't know. I'm not going to make predictions because I'm bored of being attacked online. But you know what I mean? It just feels like there's a lot of people who could come into this space and come back into this. Ethereum to $1 million by July. No, um, yeah. <laughs> you heard it here you first. You heard it here first. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> Damn, I just gave you a title for this uh, entire segment. Uh, I know how that works. Uh, I 100% I agree. I'm extremely bullish on Ethereum. I think that... Uh, but the same for Bitcoin. The, same for yeah, it all. Same, really. same. I think that argument is same for all of them. Ethereum specifically, I think the merge hit in the depths of a bear market. And I think it just 
didn't resonate how important it is, the Chappella upgrade and people actually being able to withdraw when they stake. I think there's a lot of good things. I mean, I still feel like if you're in it for the price, if you're in it for a trade, even if you view it as a five or 10 year trade, I think Ethereum is a better trade. I do. I think it, I think it will, it will capture more beta. It'll be higher, you know, just, it will, it will have a larger percentage move if we get that true cycle. It doesn't mean I think it's a better or more important asset than Bitcoin. If you said, what do you want to hold if uh, all the bad things in the world that seem to be happening all came to a head, which I think non-zero chance, but very unlikely, I want Bitcoin, right? And so I, I think it was Yusko that uh, referred to Bitcoin as schmuck insurance on my show, but I, I really love that because it is. So I want to hold some of this because I don't trust any of these guys, you know? And, and I think that, that that will resonate with a lot of people. But do you think that Bitcoin will capture a ton of um, the narrative in the next cycle? I think it's more important to remind people that there will be a next cycle, right? In this in this moment, people love to say it'll never happen again. It's all going to zero. It's going to get regulated away. There will be another cycle. And all those people, like we joked earlier, will buy at 69000 because it's breaking the all-time high and they're starting to pay attention again. That's how this works. I mean, I was speaking yesterday to one of the world's biggest crypto hedge funds and it's also one of the world's biggest hedge funds and i'm like how are you thinking about the market now and i've been bullish for quite a while now very very bullish and they're like we think there's another shoe to drop i'm like we haven't had max panic i'm like are you fucking kidding me i, uh, you I know, wholeheartedly I, disagree with that yeah I'm, I'm like i can't you know eth didn't make a new low in in October, right when not even close, the X blew up. Not even close. It was 25 percent above. I, it didn't even break a thousand. Right, maybe nine ninety at some point. I thought they broke a thousand, and the lows from July were like eight hundred. Yeah. So I'm like, what else could you throw at the market that creates anything but a short term blip? I mean, we've had Gensler go all out war. Everybody's got a lawsuit. Half the exchange in the world went bust. The other half were scams. <laughs> so what's yeah, left? And FTX, uh, you know, it was a bad moment, but that entire move was retraced in two months, right? And people said FTX is too big. It's over for crypto. It took two months for price to return to where it was. Uh, that to me was the ultimate indicator of increasing strength and just tremendous demand. And I still think we have it. Listen, there's a couple things people point to that could be the shoe to drop finance. I don't think it would matter much more than FTX, to be quite honest. I think it would be a temporary blip, like you said, maybe three months instead of two months this time. A lot of people pointing at DCG you know, and Grayscale, but I like to remind them that Genesis is already bankrupt and price didn't even move when that happened. Not an inch, right? The United States government announced that they have 50,000 Bitcoin from Silk Road that they're selling if they had already sold 10,000 and nobody even knew that they had done that in one day. I mean, to me, there's just demand. There's just tremendous demand and whatever is being thrown at the market is being absorbed, you know? And that's very clear. If you look at the huge wallets, specifically with Bitcoin, guys who have 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 Bitcoin are buying and buying and buying and not selling anything. And they did sell on the way down. So I, you could just, I, I joke, you could just fall on your head and look at the four-year cycle, pull out a historic chart, mark the halving, mark the bottoms after the halving, mark the next halving, Fall in your head, go into a coma, ignore all the macro and everything we've seen and the money printing, and we're just right in the middle of another cycle. We are. And there's going to be a halving next year. 
And three to six months after that, Bitcoin's going to go crazy and people are going to go, wow, man, that was really obvious. You know? Uh, and then everyone on Twitter is going to claim that they bought at 15,000. Yeah. And then nobody will sell at the top. <laughs> so when you're looking out, what are you excited about outside of price? So, you know, what when you're looking at the space, is there any other ecosystems you're interested in? Is there parts of Web3 applications? What really interests you? I'm going to be honest. I had a bit of an existential crisis at the end of last year about this very question. Um, I was actually sitting with Rand Nooner and his entire team at Consensus recently. I had a couple extra drinks. It was the last night. We were sitting at dinner and I kind of played devil's advocate against the industry. I said, you know, convince me that 99% of this isn't a scam, you know, going to zero, whatever. But I realized that I'm still excited about almost all of it. <laughs> and, and, but the existential crisis was that I think with all the collapse and certainly after FTX, it was just very hard to answer the questions from everyone. It was very hard to defend the industry. You know, it, it felt like a lot of the things that they had said were true, right? And it was hard not to take it to heart. I had Sam on my show 10 times, probably. You know, I, I was fooled. And so maybe it was embarrassment more, more than anything else. But then, you know, once you sort of get over that and all of the uh, attacks and, and nonsense, I think it goes back to all of the core use cases that we sort of saw bubbling in the last cycle that just weren't mature enough yet. So I'm very excited about NFTs, but less about PFPs, right? More about, less about the cartoons and more about the utility, right? I'm excited to actually see a AAA game come to the crypto space and not just Axie Infinity, right? Axie Infinity to me was an incredible a litmus test for what was possible in gaming it's because punk. it's crypto punks right because it was it a crap was... game it was really difficult to play you had to you know buy ETH on an exchange send it to metamask ronin wallet learn how but grandmothers in the philippines found a way because there was incentive to do it so if they can figure it out and do it imagine when we abstract away all of that complexity and give someone a game that's actually fun Right. So I think gaming is, I still think that's going to be absolutely massive. DeFi will be massive, just maybe not in the United States, sadly. Right. I, I you know, uh, uh, I think collateralizing Bitcoin, I know that people think now it's a horrible idea because of all the terrible things that happened, but I think that it's pristine collateral in theory, if it can be done right without, uh, putting yourself at tremendous risk, I think tokenizing assets and turning those into collateral in a more efficient manner without third parties in between could work exceptionally well. And I think that the story that people forget about all the embarrassment of centralized finance, CFI collapsing is that DeFi pretty much was fine, right? I mean, we certainly had exploits and hacks and wormholes and bridges and all these things that, that went wrong, but the margin was, you know, the collateral was there. It was liquidated in an orderly manner. The protocols worked, smart contracts functioned. And imagine when that matures. And, and, and I think that that is happening. So, uh, you know, we had DeFi summer, we had NFT summer, we had Metaverse fall. I think all of those things will find massive winning use cases that, you know, are based on blockchain. We just need to wait. I just don't think it happens in six months. And I think that we've gotten so used to, because of price, which you mentioned, so used to price going up so fast that it's hard to remember that it's only been a few years, you know, and these things take time. 
it's hard to say, oh, in 10 years, we'll have a triple A game, but maybe it's three or five years. And I wish, and I think it will happen this time around, I wish the space would not focus on leverage and the use of leverage. When you've got an 80% volatile asset, leverage gets blown up. Sure, you can use it as collateral, but lend me one times or two times. But yeah, don't me... uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. But this Over-collateralized is the loan on a volatile asset, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The industry wants to build leverage at every point because as soon as the market goes up, everyone gets greedier and greedier and greedier. And that's what blows everybody up every time. Yeah, because it's a gratuitous opportunity for someone with a lot of money and who understands the market to just short it and take advantage of all of that. And so we have this tremendous, it's an 80 vol asset, A, because it was nascent and small, but it's also an 80 vol asset because it's 100x leveraged and easy to move. Right. And, and the problem now, A, humans are just making the same mistakes again. Right. You would have loved to say after Luna and after all that, well, we're not going to do that again. Yeah. Give me a break. Right. Maybe people will use 125 instead of 150 X, you know, or, but, um, it is just, we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again, but this time there's a lot less liquidity right now because the banking rails have been cut. And so if you look at the volumes on exchanges, they're tremendously low, right? Now, I think that's bullish long-term. It means people are actually removing supply from the exchanges, but it's really easy to move this asset class right now. It's just tremendously easy. Slippage on Coinbase is historically high. I mean, I think Uniswap has more volume than Coinbase right now, which is pretty mind-blowing. Um, so I just think that we're going to need a lot bigger money and a lot bigger players in the market, which will inevitably happen to sort of eliminate that side of it where you just can't push the market around because everyone's hundred X leveraged. Yeah. I, um, you know, I started an asset management firm, exponential age asset management that invests in digital asset hedge funds. And the, the simple thesis was if I look at the hedge fund industry, it's $3 trillion. Look at the crypto hedge fund industry. It's about $5 billion. I'm like, okay, there's no capital in this space. It's just a bunch of us DGENs either using more leverage. It's, you know, the space is not, doesn't have enough larger pools of capital. So I think it comes. I think this cycle brings that Me too. It's a washing machine. It's the same reason that we have these cycles is, you know, it's sort of the old joke. You, you get the Bitcoin move and then it trickles down into large caps, then mid caps, then small caps and NFTs. Then you see the Pepe's and all these memes start going crazy. And then you say, oh crap, time to get back into Bitcoin. And you do it again. And it's the same people trading that same cycle over and over again. It becomes self-fulfilling, just like any line on a chart that everybody's watching. And that's fine. And maybe we add more uh, liquidity to that washing machine in the future, but it's still the washing machine, right? I'm not convinced that there's much new capital pouring into a mid-cap altcoin right now that wasn't already in the crypto ecosystem. It would take quite a bit of data to convince me otherwise, right? I think, in fact, right now, there's less overall liquidity. I mean, TVL obviously proves that uh, than we even had at, uh, you know, midpoints in the last cycle. But we're nowhere near. I mean, forget even market cap. I just mean people actually moving money around, buying one thing. They're not buying it with fresh money. They're buying it with something else that they bought, right? They're just flipping from one thing to another. And that's fine. It, it makes for a lot of fun, but that's not going to get pensions and endowments uh, buying Link. No, uh, I think we're still pretty far from that, unfortunately. But, I, you know, I think like you, I'm just incredibly optimistic. We've gone through the cycle. That's the worst part. What we've got to look forward to is the best part. 
Yeah, um, I mean, we should be buying everything. But the problem is nobody has any money. But you know, uh, <laughs> I always I have like, yeah, I bought I bought the dead bottom on Bitcoin. I bought the dip, but I also bought the 50k dip and the 42k dip and the 30k dip and the 22k dip. So you know, I think that either people are out of money or sadly they literally lost it. You know, I think that um, Voyager Celsius Block Fi were one thing because they were largely people around the world retail who believe they were using a bank and didn't necessarily understand because it wasn't disclosed, the counterparty risk. And those people lost. It's exceptionally sad. Maybe they're gone. What killed me about FTX, I think, or what made it different was that the true believers had their money on FTX, right? The people that were already bought in, that were aggressively investing in this market, trading, the guys who would go down the rabbit hole and yield farm and do all of this sort of native thing, they lost all their money which to me, I said it from the beginning and I got a hell of a lot of uh, pushback. I said the, the, the path of max pain is obviously up, right? Because when people want to be here and literally can't, the worst thing that can happen is that price goes up massively and they don't have any money to be a part of the market. And so I think it took a month or two for pe people to realize that their money was gone and they were no longer long all of these assets that they had been accumulating for years. And it's really sad. So I think that FTX was very different outside of the regulatory side, the Gary Gensler and the egg on the face of regulators and legislators and the embarrassment. I think just the people that really were, had bought in and were really passionate, a large percent of, the, of them lost a meaningful amount of their capital and they're just not here to be a part of it. Yeah, I think that's right. Scott, fascinating conversation. I've been dying to do this. So it was great to hear your stories and your thoughts and keep doing what you're doing. Now, you're doing Twitter Spaces now as well. What's the idea there? I think it's just going to where my audience is. They are building a YouTube channel. Uh, a, I was always sort of audio first, right? The podcast. I think we did 100 episodes before I ever had a YouTube channel or, or pivoted in that direction. YouTube is a very specific algorithm and game and one that I'm terrible at playing, to be quite honest. I can't do the screaming face thumbnail and the, uh, I just can't. I can't. Like, no. I can't look at, and I don't begrudge anyone who does because it actually no, Rand, works exceptionally Rand well. really well. He's exceptional. Uh, he's like my favorite, but I just can't, right? Uh, he always says to me, play the algorithm. You know, just put like a million dollars in the title and do the face and you're going to have twice as big of an audience. But so building a YouTube effectively from scratch instead of going to where we have, you know, eight, 900,000 followers already just seems to not make sense. That said, Twitter spaces is really glitchy. It's a hard nut to crack to some degree to beat that algorithm. You want to have a lot of guests on stage and then they all just kind of interrupt each other. And you have, I think a lot of faux experts. So trying to navigate that, which is why we've been keeping it to one a week, but I do feel like, um, this is interesting. So I've done probably 500 podcasts, right? Which I've posted on Apple and Spotify and everywhere. The most the most popular things that I now post on my audio channels like Spotify are my Twitter spaces that we literally just like record and put up on Spotify. So there's something there. There's something there. It's even resonating with my audience that's completely detached from the rest of it who just listens to audio only in the car or, you know, while they're taking a shower. They're listening to the Twitter spaces and enjoying those conversations even more than the podcast that I think, you know, I've worked on for, for so many years. So there's something there with that it's, format. It's because it's authentic. They get 
Scott live, they get the guest live, they get debate live, they get audience participation. So it feels like you're dropping into something and you're not being delivered something. And in the that, world I, of, of a lack of trust, we kind of had enough of being delivered stuff. Yeah, I think you nailed it exactly. And also, you know, we record the Twitter spaces and we put it up. So it's relevant today. Sometimes the podcast isn't even relevant in 10 days or two weeks. You put it out, but it's sort of talking over people's heads about the importance of things that might happen in five, 10 years. The Twitter spaces is what's important right now. And I think that that probably resonates. I mean, you know, there's guys like Mario Knopfel, who's on Twitter spaces, like, I swear he's there 72 hours a day. I don't, I literally don't know how he does it. I mean, I talked to him, he has a humongous team, but it's growing massively because of that, I guess, citizen journalism feel that you're getting the truth from the source in the moment, you know? And that's not necessarily what I'm doing with Twitter spaces, but I do think there's an element of that that when the conversation is so fresh, you're listening to something that just happened today, I, I think it uh, is really impactful. But I think you're absolutely right. I think for some reason, people are just more comfortable in that format speaking, you know, and you can kind of, uh, and also I think maybe people who are listening feel a little closer to the people who are speaking because you're right there. Maybe you get to ask a question, you're interacting, Kind of like how Elon Musk all of a sudden just responds to random people on Twitter, right? There's that shot that you might uh, become a part of the conversation. Uh, I don't know why, but I really, I'm enjoying it. And uh, I'm just trying to figure out the bandwidth and where to spend my time. I find YouTube just very challenging. I love it, but I just find it very challenging. Yeah. And it's all, yeah, it's all, it's, it's actually exhausting as well. All of this. I know people think, oh yeah, you just go and make content. It's exhausting to do. Um, and it's not from because we're editing video. It's just, it's mentally exhausting. It's just, you know, it's a hard thing to do. But listen, my friend, thank you for everything you do. I always enjoy your content a lot. I enjoy your Twitter feed as well. And uh, I really appreciate it and always love it when I come and chat to you in any way format. We've just got to meet up in person at some point. We've not done that I, yet. I know, man, it's got to happen. I, I feel like uh, it's inevitable. Slowly but surely, I've knocked off all the guests almost, you know, where I bump into them in the in the random street somewhere at a, at a conference. So... Would love to do that. Honestly, man, super flattered to uh, be here and to be on this side of the camera. Uh, really, really fun. And uh, it's just an honor. It's an honor. You know, I've obviously followed you from the very beginning and uh, one of the my favorite people to have on. And you're you're also you're also like the most popular guest that I have amongst amongst my own fans. So Only whatever you're doing, English accent, don't listen only... to what those people say. You know, the the the, the loud trolls are exceptionally popular and I think very well received. Uh, and to be honest, like you've largely, they, they like to tell us we're wrong, but you know, when you zoom out, I think we've largely been right. So things, things should work out in our favor. Exactly. All right, my friend. Great to see you. Thank you, man. So look, there's a lot in this. Yeah. Scott's very charming, great story, but also you learn a lot about the emotional journey that comes through this space, how hard it is to put yourself out there. And that's the same for somebody who's an influencer like Scott or an individual who's investing in the space, we all have to deal a lot with the volatility. But I think the story that Scott tells is the same story that I tell, which is there is a lot of optimism. The lows are higher every time and the highs are higher. And if you could just keep at it, be sensible in what you're doing, it'll work out for you in the end. Anyway, good luck and I hope you enjoyed it. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, 
head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 